is a wonderful live stream I did for the Conscious Awakening Network with guest Jason Paget. So we'll get into Jason's fascinating story very soon about how he became a math genius as a result of a traumatic brain injury that completely changed his life and literally changed how he sees the world. We're going to nerd out in this episode on some quantum physics. So there might be times in here where you might feel a little lost if you're not a math genius, and that's okay. There are things he talks about here where I'm sort of grasping what he's saying, but a lot of his terminology is really new for me. But I encourage you to explore staying with that if you get to a point where you feel a little lost. There's no test at the end. And this might be a case of some seeds that are being planted that might sprout or become relevant at another time. The higher level stretching and expansion into the ideas of a holographic universe and the nature of reality are really what's important here. And again, if you don't get to a point today where you feel like you really have a great grasp of the details, your consciousness is still getting a lot of good stuff. So just allow yourself to absorb what you're here to take in and relax into any discomfort that your rational intellectual mind might have to want to understand everything. So let's get into it. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Meditation Conversation, the podcast to support your spiritual revolution. I'm your host, Kara Goodwin, and I'm so excited to be with you today, live streaming for the Conscious Awakening Network. Thank you to those of you who are joining us on Zoom. It's wonderful to be with all of you. And welcome to those who are watching on other platforms on YouTube and through the Conscious Awakening Network on the app, on Roku TV, Amazon Fire. I can never remember all of the different places, but welcome everybody. And you very likely may be listening to this on the podcast on a recording. So everybody... Thank you so much for joining and participating. If you are not on the Zoom and you're like, hey, I wish I could be on the Zoom. I want to ask Jason questions and I want to be part of the conversation. I do these every month, every third Tuesday of the month at noon Eastern. And so all you have to do is go onto my website, karagoodwin.com. I have a live stream events menu button there. And you can register. I've got several lined up for the coming months with Michael Jaco and Maureen St. Germain, Isabella Green, Mina the Andromedan. You can just register for them and then you'll be sent the Zoom link and you can join us live. So today I am so honored to have Jason Paget joining. So I'll tell you a little bit about Jason, the way that I even came to know about Jason is because I received in the mail this free uh, paper that comes through my city. This is something that they send every week. And the minute I saw this on my countertop, I was like, whoa, they just sent this to every household in my city. This is a very activating <laughs> geometry this is very activating for our consciousness. And so as soon as I saw that, I could feel it. And I was like, even if when you're looking at this, you may not feel a lightning bolt or anything, it might be subtle for you, but there's a lot happening outside of our conscious awareness. 
And so I was like, wait, where this guy lives in my town? What is going on here? And so I read this article and it's fascinating. He's got an amazing story of how it came to be that he draws these and that he works with the advanced math that is related to these geometries. And what's also fascinating is that he wrote a computer program that told him where, like, where to move his family based on his, his requirements and his desires of where mm -hmm. to live. And it brought him to Carmel, Indiana, which is where I live. So I was like, whoa, that's amazing as well. So I really wanted to talk to him about what inspired him to, to create these drawings, what is going on with the math, and of course, to bring his story forward, because this is an amazing story. There are all kinds of people bringing his story forward. He's been featured in a couple of TED Talks. He's in talks for his autobiography called Struck by Genius is being turned into a film. He's got another documentary that is in talks for things to happen more on the math side. He's been featured in all sorts of national publications and publications throughout the world. Welcome, Jason. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start just with your story. Can you tell us how you became a math savant? So basically, when I was younger, I was a typical boy, just like chased girls and, and worked out and goofed off. And that was about it. Uh, I didn't pay attention in school. I, I remember actually telling one of my teachers, when are you going to use math anywhere in the, in the real world? And of course, now I know that to be the exact opposite. <laughs> so life was just very typical and normal until I was 32. And when I, I was in Seattle or in Tacoma, Washington, and I got attacked outside of the little karaoke bar, I went to pick up some friends and they had, and I was going to drive them home. And we wound up singing a song. And as we left, these two guys attacked me from behind and uh, I didn't see it coming. They just ran up and smashed me in the back of the head. And I actually heard this thud and saw a flash of light, which is, I found out from the neurosurgeon is when, that's your brain bouncing off the inside of your skull. And it makes you see this little flash, which is why boxers call it a flash knockdown. And, and I came to, I was only unconscious from standing till hitting the ground. And I came to, and I was getting punched and kicked from all different directions Anyway, make a long story short, these guys wound up getting my jacket and they ran off. And what happened was, is that attack damaged one part of our my brain that smooths out picture frames. Eventually I was diagnosed with savant syndrome, but it also caused something called motion blindness. Whenever you see something move like my hand, your brain's taking pictures one picture at a time, just like an old fashioned flip book where you would draw cartoon characters on different pages and then you flip the flip book and it looks like it's moving, but it looks all jittery like this. Well, we all see about 22 pictures per second and one part of your brain, its function is to smooth out the picture frames so that my hand doesn't look like this. And that part of my brain was injured. And so when things move, I see the picture frames. And that makes the mathematics behind motion just stand out along with interference patterns. Wow. So is it still correct that even after all these years, because was that in the nineties that happened? It was 2002. It was Friday. Okay. It was December, uh, Friday the 13th, 2002. Oh, wow. And that, and it's permanent. Yeah. So it's always that way, but it actually is beautiful. It's very disorientating. It took me about three years to get used to I had all sorts of vertigo issues and, and uh, migraines and all sorts of things over the years due to all sorts of different things. But eventually I got to where I, I didn't have the vertigo so bad and, and 
it led to an amazing place because it changes the way you see things. Before, when things look fluid, it's not obvious as to what's going on. But when you're seeing things as discrete picture frames, since our brain's taking pictures at a steady time interval, if like a car was moving in front of me and it was going say 60 miles an hour and it stayed going the same speed, then each picture frame was the same distance apart because it was going the same speed in the same amount of time. But if the car went faster, then the first picture frame would be like this. The second picture frame would be like this. Third one would be like this. And the rate of change between those picture frames is, is describing its change in velocity or its acceleration. And when you go and you take physics classes, they literally teach you these little dot diagrams that show the exact same thing, how it's the rate of change between these time intervals and the distances that things move that allows you to define what's going on. And so all of us are doing it. Like when somebody throws you a ball and you catch it, you're, you, the reason the ball is slowing down as it goes up and then speeding up as it comes back down is because your brain is telling you the picture frames are getting shorter as it goes up, the picture frames are getting farther apart as it comes back down. And you calculate that. When I throw you the ball, you're calculating the arc of the ball due to the gravitational field, how to get your hand to meet the ball in four-dimensional space-time, even calculating for like the delay from the brain to your hand, and yet you just catch the ball. But if you were to calculate that, like in math class, it would take you weeks to do it, yet we all just catch the ball. So we're all doing it. It's just this stuff is going on in the background of our brain, and we, we don't, we're not aware of it consciously. Wow. When you talk about it being a beautiful way to see the world, it, can you explain that a little bit? Like, how is it different? I can't, I, it's hard for me to wrap my brain around that if you're in a place where there's a lot of motion, like you go to a basketball game or something and you're seeing like all of these individual players are moving at different, in different directions at different times. And then all the people in the crowd all of that motion, the time, the clock, the, the all of it is changing and you're seeing like snippets yes. of it. The, the easiest way to imagine it is imagine, you ever been in a strobe light or where, where you're in like a dark room and the strobe light's going and it looks like everybody's jerking, point, point, point. That's because you can't see them and then you do see them and then you can't see them and you do. It's just like a strobe light, but much lighter. It's just like puff, 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 puff. It's these little puffs like a strobe light, but much less intense than a strobe light. And that's what gives, it makes everything clearly stand out as individual snapshots of information instead of this smooth, continuous flow that we all think we experience. Okay. And sound does, did your set the way that you hear get affected or do you hear that as a continuous? No, I, I hear sound as continuous. Yeah. Okay. So how did that then that experience, um, change your relationship with mathematics? Yeah. So I didn't have one before at all. And then suddenly it just started making the way things moved seem very logical and very connected. And, and for some reason it was very easy to see how it was all related to the speed of light also, but so I started, I didn't have any mathematical language to describe how things were changing. And so I started trying to draw it. And uh, what actually uh, first started me on it, I, I was thinking about the concepts and trying to explain it to family members, but it was very difficult, especially because I didn't have any experience at, at the time. And uh, I was talking to my, my young, my oldest daughter now, but she was young at the time. She was like five or six. And she asked me how the television worked. And I said, oh, the TV, it has little square pixels on it. And when the square pixels change color, that changes the picture. And right as I said that, a commercial for overstock.com came on with a big circle. And she goes, that's wrong. How do you make a circle with rectangles? And I was like, you can't. And I never had really thought about it like that. But then it made it, after seeing things as a discrete snapshot, it made it easier to see what the 
what it was actually happening. And so I realized that when you're looking at a television screen, it's made with little rectangle pixels. If you look in closely on your phone or your computer screen, every circle is actually a small zigzag. It's not a curve. And you can take the pixels on the television screen and cut them in half to a pixel half that size, and then cut that pixel in half and cut that pixel in half. And you can keep cutting pixels in half to infinity, and you get closer and closer to a circle as the resolution gets better, but you never reach a perfect circle because perfect circles don't actually exist. I look like I'm curved, but I'm made with little rectangle cells. And when you get down to the quantum level, everything becomes these little tiny triangles and hexagons, which is the same shape as that flower of life. And so it shows, and that's what math is. Math is when you graph equations, you're graphing equations on a grid. And so this shows that space-time is a grid just like a television screen. It's just the resolution is trillions upon trillions of times higher, but still it's very similar to a, a television, which is why in, in the holographic universe principle, they call uh, space-time the holographic screen. Mm. Well, and this is where we really intersect. And this is why I was so drawn to having you on because my work is in consciousness. So it's understanding reality from the quantum perspective. And a lot of my, I have a, a mixed understanding of things that I've learned from other people and their experiences, but then also my own experiences where I'm seeing reality as a geometric pattern, as geometric patterns, as colors, as uh, repeating patterns yes. um, in my inner world. And it feels as real as what we're used to in the physical, but because you don't share it with other people, it can be hard to explain. It can be hard to understand. And so this is what you're studying with and what you're proving with math is this quantum space. And like you say, the holographic universe, which then relates to consciousness. And there's such like, we've talked, you and I have talked a couple of times and gone pretty deeply and it's, we keep coming back to, we're saying the same thing, Yes, but you see it with numbers and, and physics really, and quantum physics. And I just see it as a different kind of reality. And one thing I do want to dive into a little bit more of the math and the black holes and the Hawking's radiation and things like that. But as you talk about pixels, I'm curious, especially with people who are watching, because I think about this, where if I, if I'm looking in the room that I'm in, you can see the color of my wall, a neutral color wall. But if I look at the wall, there's, it's like the neutral color, the beigey gray kind of thing is what my brain decides is the overall color. But if I look at it, more intently, it is made up of all these speckles of light, of color, and they're not beigey gray. There are blues in there. There are purples in there. There are greens. And it's almost like I've made this agreement with my physical eyes that I'm like, I'm going to ignore that stuff. And I'm just going to see this bigger color. And I'd love to hear if you have you this yeah. I know. Yeah, I, I thought about this exact thing, same thing too. And that's the thing between quantum mechanics and relativity. And so it's, an, it's called an emergent behavior, how where you are, how big you are, and how you are moving relative to what you're looking at defines what it is to you. And the easiest way to think about that is if we are all looking at your television screen right now, 
your television screen is made of pixels, but every pixel on your screen is only playing red, blue, and green. That's it. So if you zoom in real close and look at the pixels on your screen with the magnifying glass, you'll see that there's nothing but red, blue, and green at different intensities. But when you zoom away from the television, all those wavelengths overlap and blend as an emergent behavior and become the rainbow. But still, when you're looking at your screen, the screen itself has nothing but red, blue, and green, yet we're all seeing all these different colors right now because a different behavior emerges from the like the sum of the histories of all the waves that they're averaging. Wow. Isn't it's that crazy? So, it's so fascinating, especially because you can look at something that is decidedly a solid color. If you're looking at your television screen, it's got it's backlit or that's not maybe the right word, but it's got light coming from it. And it's got like kind of art, more artificial light, but you look at something like you could do this with the sky, but something like paint on a wall that is supposed to be monochrome. And, and it's like, wow, there are all different kinds of colors in there and they're moving too. Yes. At any point, they're not just stationary, like, oh, there's where the yellow part is. And there's the purple, you know, these tiny, tiny little units of color they're always moving to it's, it's the averaging of the information. Like when you look at the beach and you see the, the, the brown sand on the beach and then you look at sand under a microscope, there's red, blues, purples, different shapes, live things moving. It's, it's our brain or it's everything being averaged together in terms of information. But again, if you're one of those creatures in the sand, you're seeing the big giant red mountains and all these other things that are around you. So where you are and how big you are and your perspective changes the information content of what you were observing. So it's the universe is, is, is much more amazing and weird than I ever would have thought 20 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> well, I want to, I want you to share with us, if you can, just about some of the work that you're doing. So you've talked about Hawking radiation. Actually, now I can't remember if this was right before we went live that we started talking about Hawking radiation or if you've talked about it since we started right. this. But what is fascinating, so many things of this are fascinating, but I remember the first time you and I spoke and just to put some synchronicity and behind the scenes of, because a lot of us who are watching are probably very interested. You know, this is how we engage with our world is like, wow, these synchronicities come up, which give a lot like extra validity to the content of what we're engaging with. But you and I were talking on the phone and I call, I had called you, but the way that it had worked in my world was I'm writing a book and I was editing my book. And I was like, once I get to the end of editing this chapter, I'll call Jason. And so I'm editing this chapter that's talking about how I've experienced time working from what I call the quantum. When I say quantum, I'm just talking about it's beyond time and space. It's not linear. It's like, I'm just in, this is where I'm talking about with those, those, when I see things as patterns, repeating patterns, colors, geometries. And so I'm not seeing necessarily like forms. I'm not seeing beings. I'm not seeing landscapes. I'm seeing everything as repeating patterns and ever-changing geometries, like almost like looking in a kaleidoscope because it's like these patterns that are all interrelated and repeating um, and ever-changing. But I've experienced the, the workings of time. And I think that's this big thing that we can experience in numerous ways. And um, so in my book, I'm writing about how that's presented to me. And I use the analogy of a record player. 
And so I'm talking about how there are any different number of ways that we could experience anything. All of us who are watching, we can be watching this and we can have any different kind of level of experience. So we could decide that we don't like this content and something's annoying, like my voice is annoying you and you're itchy and you're uncomfortable and you're not in a very good mood. You're not, you just, you're not enjoying it. And you could be watching this with that experience. And what is also available is that you're open, you're excited, you're, you know, oh my gosh, this is explaining things to me, or I'm not quite getting it, but I kind of get it. And it's really interesting that I have this different perspective. So you could be having like more of an open, curious, excited, and those are valid. It's just what, it's just the experience that you're having but there are different like layers to anything that we experience. And I talk about how it's like a record player coming down and it's where the needle comes down is what the experience that you have. And so it's like how you experience it is your own unique way. And there are different levels of, at which the opportunity is there for you to experience. So I call Jason, <laughs> I finished that chapter get the leash on my dog so we can go for a walk. And I call Jason and within about two minutes, he starts talking about black holes and how certain parts of, I'm going to put it in care language, but this is what he said. I'm going to mess it up. But you know, the edge of a black hole is like a record player mm -hmm. and that the Hawking radiation, is that what the needle is? Yes. It's a light needle a light needle. And, and then, you know, the way in the record with all of its um, grooves and all of the ways that it contains the information is another part of it. The cubits maybe, or I can't remember. Yes. Okay. So I'm so, going to just, I'm like going through mud here, trying to relate yeah, so, it back to what so, you said. <laughs> so basically, so what, what this is showing is that uh, the universe, the holographic universe principle and quantum information holography are showing that the universe is a holographic projection and that, that the projection comes from black holes. And uh, when you brought up that thing about the record player and the needle, that's exactly how I, I describe the, these black holes and how the information from within the black hole uh, escapes in a sneaky way. So it basically uh, all throughout space-time, there's this drawing that I have. I don't know if you have it uh, there to show of the space, that one that was on the paper. Is that the one with the circle? Yes, that, the, on the front page of the newspaper. Oh, this, sorry, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. So each one of those little hexagons in that drawing represents a, a qubit. And in the center of each one of those little hexagons uh, is a black hole, a tiny black hole. And a black hole is a region of space where gravity is so intense that nothing can escape, not even light. But that creates a problem in physics that information can, can, and energy can never be destroyed. And so when something goes into a black hole, the information is lost forever because nothing can escape a black hole. Um, unless we can find a way to solve that. And so what this is showing, this theory is showing is that there's entangled black holes. And so imagine this is a black hole in our universe. This is a black hole in another universe, and it's connected by a wormhole. And each one of these black holes has a needle of Hawking radiation connected to it. And the black holes are spinning like a record player. And as they spin, that little light needle of Hawking radiation reads the surface area of the, the bumpiness of the black hole based on how much mass is, is in it. 
and it imprints a little vector of light onto those little qubits of space-time. And that, in terms of information, describes uh, the cosine of that little, it's called the angular velocity of the Hawking radiation leaving the black hole. And when it is emitted onto that little qubit, the cosine of it, the, in other words, the angle of that describes what the probability is one moment later that that qubit will be a zero or, an, or a one, just like a computer. The angle also defines the percentage of the speed of light that is encoded. And then one moment later, as those quantum state vectors change, as the needle reads different information content in the black hole, that is describing acceleration or curvature of space-time. And it, it shows a sneaky way that you retrieve the information from within the black hole by the Hawking radiation that is emitted from just outside the black hole and interacts with it. And so it, it shows that the singularity of a black hole isn't this point where everything just gets crushed infinitely tiny. The information content of light waves is focused onto one qubit and the information there is read by the Hawking radiation and imprinted onto the holographic screen. So it conserves the information. But what's so amazing is that what it means is that everything in the singularity is happening there, but it's all on top of itself. And we feel separate when we are projected onto the holographic boundary. So all of us and everything in the universe is together as an interference pattern, like a record player at the singularity. And that information is projected onto the multiverse, all possible configurations of our universe. And basically it shows that everything reduces to one thing and that's the information contained within light. Sorry, that was a long Ooh. explanation. <laughs> yeah. <Sorry>. It, <laughs> all right. So <laughs> everybody got that? Sorry, I know, I know it's so much to try to, to, to take in at once, but. <laughs> well, it's funny because I, I imagine a lot of people are doing what I have to do, which is like translate that into yes. what we understand of reality mm -hmm. and consciousness and what it means to be alive and what it means for our sensory experience. And so it is a lot. So if we talk about singularity, like when I think of that and then that being projected as a mm -hmm. hologram. So I think of like one huge, like massive black hole that we can't maybe even really fathom the size of and all of that's contained within it. Because what you're saying is that we can't really get the information that's inside the black hole. It's what's being on the edges, radiated out on the edges. So from that perspective, everything's coming from one little qubit. But then there's a huge surface area in Gargantuan. a black hole, right? Right. So that all the information in the entire multiverse, not just our universe. So that's the multiverse, which is two to the 10th to the 123rd power number of ways that you can configure our universe. It's a massive number. All that information is at the singularity and being projected. And so when you're, when everything's at the singularity, it's all in superposition. It's all on top of each other. So you can't it's light waves are making bumps and grooves, just like the vinyl record player, but it's all squished onto one spot. But when it's projected onto the boundary, we feel separate in our projected states. And so basically it's showing that the information content within the black hole has an equivalent and identical description on the boundary. But technically we're all together as an interference pattern of information in the singularity that is then projected onto the holographic screen, which is our space-time. And so that massive number that you said, the, the 10th the Beckenstein the, bound. Yes. Yeah. And that was where you said to the 123rd power. So it, would those be like, there are that many singularity events 
on the horizon? These little, those little hexagons in that drawing, those are all called Planck qubits. And there's massive, they're so tiny, they make atoms look like the size of a galaxy. So in just our universe, there's just massive amounts of them. And, and yes, it's a field of black holes. Everything is a field of black holes. And, and it, those black holes emit information as light. And, but then that's our, that's just our universe. Then you have to take our universe's number of qubits and multiply it by two to the 10th of the 123rd power. That's how many histories can happen in our universe. But, but it goes neat places. Cause if you think about it, like people, like a lot of times people ask me like, what happens after you die or that, that kind of thing? Well, what this shows is that energy is never destroyed. It only changes form. So that you have a big bang and a big crunch and a big bang and a big crunch. And after two to the 10th to the 123rd power, big bangs and big crunches, the pattern has to repeat because you can't reconfigure the pixels in our universe an infinite number of ways. So every two to the 10th to the 123rd power, your exact same life occurs again. And a lot of time people say, oh, that's so far into the future, it doesn't matter. And what I tell them is, well, when you're dead, you're not, your energy is still there. It's just in the form that can't retain memories. So you don't notice time. And then what I say is, do you remember waiting to be born? We had to wait 13.8 billion years in this universe for all of our light waves to become fused in stars and become all the atoms that are us. But none of us remember to be wait, waiting to be born. It's because you're not in the form that can retain memories. So in my opinion, when you die, the next thing you know is you're a baby. Because even though there's a huge, vast amount of time in between there, you're completely unaware of it. It's like the frames in between a picture frame when you're watching a movie. What happens mm -hmm. so quick, and for us, it's, it's quick because you can't observe it. And if you can't observe it, it doesn't exist to you. Right. Oh, wow. Okay. I've got a lot of questions from that too. Mm -hmm. Lori has a great question here. Is that where the concept of simulation theory is coming into play? A holographic universe. That's how I've heard it framed. Totally. That's exactly what this is showing. It's showing that there's an information field that's nothing but qubits of light with light emitted onto the qubits. And when that information oscillates, it gives rise to quantum mechanics and physics. So quantum mechanics and physics are describing what's going on the holographic screen. Hol holography and quantum information holography is describing how you write code with bits of light that is equivalent to physics and quantum mechanics. And what's really neat is the code is actually what's fundamental. And, and, and the way that we know this is that there's this is a little bit complicated part. It's called there's something called Lorentz invariance in, in quantum mechanics and physics. When you approach the speed of light, like lengths contract and things change color and time dilates. And so it makes the equations change. And you don't want your equations to change. You want them to stay completely invariant and unchanging. But what this shows is the information field those qubits are describing everything's in terms of zeros and ones. So no matter what type of weird effects are happening in quantum mechanics and relativity, the information content of light is naturally invariant because it's just zeros and ones and it never, those zeros and ones always represent the same thing. But yes, exactly. It is, to me, it's showing that, well, yes, the universe works just like a simulation. It appears to be a naturally occurring simulation, but a naturally occurring simulation that, that occurs in all possible configurations. There's going to be some wild universes. There's going to be some boring universes. There's going to be anything that you can imagine on that screen at some point happens. The only difference is how often does it happen? Mm, okay. Whew. All right, Lori, I'm going to unmute you. There you Hello. go. Well, a follow-up to that, which yeah. perfect, amazing, love it. Um, me and Kara talk a lot about like our dreams and these experiences that happen to us when we're meditating. And so the flip book thing has been coming up 
a lot. So when you said that, she was telling me about that. And so can you explain that? Because the way it happens to me, I've had two different things happen. Well, two different ways that it happens. A and lot I told of times you about this, Jason. Sorry, this is Lori that I told you about okay. on Sunday. Right. Yeah. Sorry. The Pi Day girl, my birthday. Right. Pi Day, so. It's also Einstein's birthday. I know. I know. It's so fun. So what happens is a lot of times, like when I come in from meditation or this can happen upon waking up. So when you're in that hypnagogic state and you're coming in and out or whatnot, I will get that flip book situation. And sometimes it's of me, of all my memories. Like I'll hear, like, I'll feel myself coming back into the body and almost like hearing like assimilating Lori. And I'm seeing like all my memories, just this flip book, just and it's really fast in succession. And I'm seeing it happen. And then it's, I could feel my body like assimilating back in. That's one way it occurs. And then another way that it occurs is I'll see it as, multi-dimensionals or ETs and I'll see like their faces and I'll see that as a flip book and just real fast, just all these different species, races and all this stuff. And it's happening very quickly. So what's up with that? What's with the flip book and how that yeah, <laughs> what's so, occurring? So, so that's a really weird thing about the way the universe works. So like when this first started happening to me and I saw things as picture frames, what it made me think is, well, when I watch a movie or a television show, nothing's actually moving you're seeing the one still shot of nothing moving on the screen. And then one second later, a new picture. And then so like the flip book. So nothing's actually moving. It's the information content that is changing from moment to moment. And then I started thinking about reality. Well, reality, when I see things move, there can't be an infinite number of picture frames. And it turns out there isn't. There's something called Planck time. It's the maximum amount of picture frames that there are, uh, that the universe, the maximum frame rate of the universe. And so what it means is even for us, things aren't moving as we think they are. That's the effect of the visual effect of the information field. But in reality, nothing is moving. It's just snap. Like even when I walk across the room, I'm disappearing and reappearing in plank time, trillions upon trillions upon trillions of times. It's just so fast that it's, it's just nobody can, it looks like it's completely continuous, but technically it's quantum discrete steps. And so we're, we're just like that flip book, only it's the most fundamental thing. It's the information that is changing from moment to moment that gives the feeling of gravity and things like that. Basically, imagine we are the characters on the television screen and, and you're flipping four pictures at a time every second, four pictures per second. And then suddenly you start picturing eight or flipping eight frames per second. So there's a higher information content. When you go from four pictures per second to eight pictures per second, that would feel to a character on the screen as acceleration, a change in velocity. So there's a way to write velocity and acceleration in terms of rate of information flow. And so a simulation feels these effects of gravity, velocity, uh, et cetera, et cetera, based on the rate that information is flowing and it's equivalent to gravity. It's just it's one of those things that just blew my mind that nothing is really moving. And another way to think about it is like, if you ever looked at a car tire and, it, and it's spinning, right? And then suddenly it looks like it starts to spin backwards, even though it's not, it's still moving forward. The reason why is because imagine I have a, a like I put a dot, like my fist is a dot that's on a, a tire and I'm rotating the tire spinning and my brain takes a picture here. And then my brain takes a picture here, but now the tire starts to change its speed. And my next frame that I take a picture is back here instead of in front of it. That's why a tire looks like it's going backwards. It's because the rate that your brain is taking picture relative to how fast the tire uh, is moving 
is showing you different moments of time that sometimes look like they're going forward and sometimes look like they're going backwards. And that right there is proof that when you're looking at things, you are seeing picture frames or else the tire would always look like it's going forward. But then you would have to take an infinite number of pictures, which can't be done. Well, that's too, I'm thinking of oscillating fans. Yes. And is it like if you have a strobe light? Yes. I it think... looks like it's going backwards because you're seeing the picture frames in reverse instead backwards. of what's actually happening. Yeah. Or that they're still. Yes. That they're moving really slowly. Yes. So yeah. they, they've done that with helicopter blades. So imagine I have a, a dot on my, my, my tire again and I, I spin and my brain takes a picture here. And then I spin and my brain takes a picture here. You're always seeing the picture in the same spot. So the tire doesn't look like it's spinning at all, even though it is. And it has to do with the timing of how fast it's spinning relative to how fast the picture frames are being taken. Oh my gosh. I think of things in terms of vibration. So mm -hmm. in like when we're doing spiritual evolution, a lot of things and they're colloquial, I don't know how to say that word, but colloquial, something like that. You guys know what I mean? But terms, <laughs> thinking about things in terms of vibration, because we talk a lot about raise your vibration and it will, that's how you have these higher experiences. You have higher emotions. You have less of the kind of things that drag you down, like anger and sadness and all that. Those are like lower vibration. And when I think of vibration, I think of exactly what you were saying in terms of information. Yes. So the higher vibration is these waves that if you think of distance, so if you think of like this unit of distance and you have a, a low, slow wave and you only get maybe one, one wavelength in that distance, but then you rate, then you raise the vibration, meaning you have many more waves that fit into the same distance Yes, and those waves being information. Exactly. So you just have this ability to bring in more. And so what is that more? Is it, it light, more knowledge, more? Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's similar. It, it, you're literally describing relativity, which is awesome. So imagine we've all heard a car drive by us and it goes and it changes pitch, right? Well, our brain hears short wavelengths of sound like this as a high pitch and long wavelengths of sound our brain interprets as a low pitch. So as the car is moving towards me, the waves are getting squished together, which makes shorter wavelengths. And so I hear that as a high pitch and then it moves away from me and the waves stretch out and get longer. And I hear that as a low pitch. And that's why it changes pitch. But now to add relativity to it, imagine the car is going from me towards you guys. Well, relative to me, it's moving away from me. So I hear the sound getting lower pitch and lower pitch. But relative to you, it's coming towards you. So you hear the sound getting higher and higher. And you stop right there and say, well, what sound is the car making? A low pitch to me or a high pitch to you? And it's making both sounds relative to who's looking at it. And then you say, now imagine there's an infinite number of people all looking at that car and they're all moving different velocities. All of them hear a different sound, yet every single reality is real and valid. It's just that it's relative because you're never in two places at once to hear both sounds. So what I, when I talk to like students and stuff, I say, if you have your, your parents or your buddy with the motorcycle drive down in between you while you're filming them on a camera here. And one of your buddies films them on a camera here and have them drive in between you and then play the two cell phones next to each other. And you'll hear the high pitch on one and you'll hear the low pitch on the other. So reality is just a wave of information. And that wave is interpreted by who's looking at it. And that reality is real to that observer, even though they're all slightly different and some of them radically different. Mm -hmm. so.
Wow. Well, this makes me think too of like timelines. And again, we were talking about that, the singular singularity event and that it being that the event horizon and the mass and how many singular events could be on that, the yes. mass, the big mass that that is. What are your thoughts in terms of timelines that we experience as individual entities? One of the things that I think of in your story, for example, do you have any theory that you change timelines because your you know your life is exceptionally different from when you were in Tacoma in 2002 December 12th 2002 and December 13th and on you're a very different person do you have any theories in terms yeah, of Yeah I've, of I've timelines? actually thought a lot about that cuz I'm always thinking as I move forward as I move one plank length forward there's a version of me that goes left right up and down and at every moment all of these realities are branching and all of them actually happen and just at different rates and that's one of the questions that I have is who I am exactly this universe only or is it the information content of me experiencing all the different realities. And that's the one thing I don't know. I know when you die, the next thing you wake up, you next thing you know is you're a baby, but I don't know which universe it's going to be. Is it going to be this one always? And that's just me or is me every version of it? <laughs> right. Yeah. And then the if you have an infinite number of universes, multiverses, are the laws the same in all of those universes? Right. So some of them, like the fine structure constant and things will develop differently and atoms won't form. And so it's every, literally every possible configuration, the Bekenstein bound number configurations, no matter how weird it is, somewhere nothing happens, somewhere everything's perfect, somewhere everything's bad, every possible configuration happens. And so it really makes you have to open your mind to, and it shows like the interconnectedness of everything. We are all just light waves and mass is just light waves tangled up in, in curvature, but it's still all just light waves. And the hol and, and the definition of a hologram shows that within every single piece of the hologram, every tiny light wave contains all the information at a reduced resolution of the whole. So every light wave in you contains all the information from every possible configuration of our universe at a reduced uh, informational level. That's the definition of a hologram, how each piece uh, holds the information content of the whole at a reduced resolution. Huh. Wow. And I wonder So the how universe this... is within you and you are within the universe. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> And it makes me wonder as we get these glimpses of things that we may not have personal, like maybe we have, because there are all kinds of weird stuff that just happen with our consciousness with different people. So remote viewing, there are people who can not be in a physical location, but they can still accurately talk about what is happening in a different location. There are governmental agencies, particularly in Russia and the US who have we verified that they do these types of psyops as one right. example. And then other people who can tap into even like off planet thing, more and more of this is happening where it's just like knowledge within them that they haven't, that they don't really know what's going on. They don't really aren't seeking it out, but it's just, they just have this information. And so it makes me wonder too, you've got this mirror that we talked, you've talked about what's inside the black hole and well, yeah, what's got, on the horizon. But yes. then are there, maybe there are other like wormholes where our, this physical entity also has a connection to other 
physical entities that even we might not even be able to imagine in yes. this plane. You know? This shows that. So when I'm talking about our black hole emitting Hawking radiation that instantly makes this other one take on the opposite spin, they're actually both connected. So we are the code and the coder, the product and the producer. You, you see what I'm saying? It, it that, that universe relies on mine just as much. They're completely entangled and it happens instantaneously, just exactly the opposite. And it, it shows that we are all truly connected. We all really are at the singularity. So we are all squished under one little qubit and we're all there, all that information. So if you had a way to access that information, you could access the information of anything if you had a way to access it. And the one thing I have found is, is the more I've learned, reality is a lot weirder than what we thought it was. Yeah. <laughs> and things that I, I wasn't willing to accept 10 years ago, I'm like, there's no way around it. To me, the, the multiverse is a fact. And, and the reason why is because I have actual empirical evidence. This is just empirical evidence, not like proof solid, but it's mathematically uh, correct. And it, it is some empirical evidence. So imagine, again, I'm talking about the boundary, our holographic screen of our universe. And everything on the boundary of our universe, there is an equivalent description in the bulk of the black hole. They call it the bulk and the boundary. So everything in the universe is at the singularity. That includes all the dark energy in the universe. And dark energy makes space expand faster and faster and faster. And we thought it came from quantum fluctuations in space-time, and you add all those quantum fluctuations up, and it makes the universe expand faster. But when we calculated it, it turned out to be like to 123rd power, too much energy. And so it was like way too much dark energy. But then I thought just recently when it, when I got the unification equations, it hit me that, wait a second, all the dark energy is at the singularity. But when you spread the dark energy out over the Bekenstein bound number of universes, it gives you the correct energy density of dark energy. And that's never been done before. And it's, and I've got the calculations done. It's actually, uh, it's published. I don't know when it'll ever be acknowledged, but it's the first time that we've been able to accurately calculate the uh, dark energy density in our universe. And the only way it works is if the multiverse is real and there's a Bekenstein bound number of universes where that energy is spread out over a much larger area instead of the singularity. Wow. Yeah. And that to the 123rd power is the, is same the Bekenstein as, bound. Yeah. Because you said it's two to the 10th to, to the, the 123rd. 123rd. But when you spread it out over but the then, surface area, uh -huh. It actually gives you the dark energy density that's correct. And what has been calculated by like scientists, NASA, CERN, they've calculated the approximate energy density of dark energy. And this is so close to matching that it, it, it appears to be correct. And nothing else even comes close. When they tried to calculate it, they were, what's funny is they were right. They, they calculated the correct thing. The only thing they didn't do was spread it out over all the Bekenstein bound number of configurations. That's what makes it, uh, give you the correct value so wow because remember all that energy is all that energy density is at the singularity but the surface area of two to the 10th to the 123rd power of our universes is a massive surface area compared to one qubit and by spreading it out over that it gives you the the correct energy density wow it, and can you talk a little bit more about dark energy because i think there's a scientific explanation of what dark energy is and then there's another as more esoteric relation to what that means yeah so so dark energy is just is something that's making the universe expand and it makes it expand faster and faster and what dark energy really is just showing that nothing with mass can move faster than the speed of light but empty space can expand as as much as it wants 
And so if you have a galaxy here and a galaxy here, the dark energy between them is making them get further apart, but it's actually making them speed up faster and faster. And so dark energy is this repulsive force, like opposite gravity, that is actually pushing things apart. And the, the further apart things get, the faster they get pushed apart. Hmm. So. And do we see this reflected, obviously, in space? Yes. Do you see this reflected at the micro level as well? You wouldn't, I don't think it would be noticed, but dark energy is definitely everywhere. But where it exists is in the empty space between things, between mass. Uh, and so it, it would be there in the tiny, in the quantum, but it wouldn't be, you need lots of it. It's very, it's a very small amount of energy when you spread it out over the Bekenstein bound number of universes. But when you have vast empty spaces, it accumulates. Each push adds to itself. So it goes faster and faster. Interesting. Cause that when I, when you say that it makes me think too, like when you're expanding your knowledge, you're building out your energy systems as an individual where you just keep accessing a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And when we think of black holes containing all of this information, because they're like absorbing or just they're full of information. Yes. And it, like thinking about that on the micro level of adding more and more like tiny cosmic black holes, perhaps right. that's holding more and more information. And then that goes back to relating to those vibrations and wavelengths. And, yes. and everything is frequency and vibration. Tesla was so on top of when he, he, I mean, I, it was one of my favorite quotes of him. He's like, if you want to understand the universe, think in terms of frequency and vibration. And it's totally yeah. true because everything, by everything just being light, that's all we're talking about is frequency and vibrations, but in different ways. Like when we talk about quantum mechanics, we're talking about light waves. When we talk about the information field, we're talking about angular frequency and black holes. And when we're talking about gravity, we're talking about curvature, but it's still all just light from different perspectives. That, that's it. Yeah. One's, one is up close quantum mechanics. The other one's information and gravity is how the waves change, They're the curvature how the rate yeah. that the angles change. Right. And with the holographic projection as well, and the angle, I mean, that I've seen in my own, you know, these kind of quantum experiences, again, my definition of quantum where, you know, beyond time and space suspended physical reality is ended. And I've seen different ways they've presented in different ways. Information has presented in different ways, but one has been as like these gears. So like a realm of gears, just some of the massive, but just this huge like orchestration, like being inside a clock, but with just so many gears everywhere. And that was once almost like an one axis of this realm or whatever. And then there was like another axis that was like maybe that I looking back, I'm like, maybe that was representative time. And then the other axis was space, but they came together at the angle that they came together. I understood that projected the reality that I had. And there was the angles of those intersections kind of. That's the dictated. information content. The rate that the angles change of light contains information. And so, yeah, so all the black holes are spinning and they're all spinning at different rates. And so depending upon the rate that they spin changes the information content because it changes the way that the light wave leaves the boundary of the black hole. So you can think of reality as 
because black holes spin fast, high percentages of the speed of light. And so they're zipping and twisting all over the place. And that's making the light do all this crazy, weird little things that, that then contains all those, the information content and the rates of change of the light waves. Mm-hmm. So it, it's amazing that they, they can literally, that turns into a type of computer code that is written in a naturally occurring way from black holes, you know? Oh my goodness. I think we are all going to really need to take a nap when this is over. <laughs> Patty, do you have a question? Yep. There you are. Hello. How are you, Jason? Fantastic. <clears throat> the one quick comment that we call what happened to you a coward punch. Yes, totally. <laughs> I didn't see now, it coming. Uh, there was no warning. They didn't say anything. It was just it. pow. <laughs> uh, now, to, <clears throat> does your um, very different mass ability, does it relate to sacred geometry? Yeah. So what this shows is every equation in the universe is a shape. So if I take the equation like negative X squared and you graph it on a uh, piece of graph paper, it makes this parabolic arc like this. And gravity is also uh, like a, a, a function like that. So if you we were to describe throwing a ball in the air in math, mathematically, you can describe this parabolic arc. But what I always say is what's real, the path that the ball followed or is it X squared that's real? But what's neat is they both are actually describing the same thing. And so every everything in sacred geometry, like my drawing of space-time, I came to that through a, a mathematical way, but it's identical to, to the flower of life. And so the equations that describe space-time's geometry is the same thing as the flower of life. It's just looking one and from one person's perspective, you're looking at that information as just a shape. Whereas a mathematician, they're looking at that same shape in terms of information and equations. But it's literally just like space and time, two halves of the same coin. We're talking about the same thing, just in different ways. And that's one thing that I found out is a lot of people who, who love sacred geometry and or, or they're more creative, they can understand things easier in terms of geometry. And a lot of mathematicians are really good at the equations, but not so good at geometry. And only the few like Einstein and Stephen Hawking, they were good at equations and seeing the relationship between the equations and the geometry and how they're really two manifestations of the same thing, just like we can look at light as light waves, information, or curvature. It's all the same thing. This, the only thing that's changing is perspective. Just like looking at the pixels on the screen up close, you only see red and blue, and you turn, you get away from it, and then you see the rainbow. Perspective changes the information content. It's so strange <laughs> and beautiful. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wow. Uh, I just that... I've come a... Go ahead, Pat. I've come across a fellow called Jane 108, and he's very much a sacred geometry fellow, but he's also a mathematician. Right. Uh, so whether whether you guys could actually have some answers to help one each other, I don't know. But Every um... shape has an equation. So every shape that you see, no matter what sacred geometry shape it is, it has a specific ex- equation that describes it that is equivalent to the shape. And, and again, for me, the, the structure of space-time itself is dot for dot identical to the flower of life, not one deviation anywhere. So I mean, that right wow. there to me is proof that at least we're seeing the same concept. Might, there might be intricate details here and there that we all see differently, but that main content is the same thing. Just a cubit lattice is the flower of life, as long as you've drawn that flower of life with bits of light. So. Mm. Wow. Well, 
Thank you so much, Jason. This has been, this has been amazing. And I always enjoy talking to you. I really appreciate everybody who has joined today. I wanted to mention also, you can find Jason's artwork. Tell us what your website is. It's like most, a lot of it's on Fine Art America. And I'm also selling like originals and things like that at Art on Main. I may be doing art based on Miami Beach and the Hooser Salon here, hopefully in the next year. And, but also Art on Main. It's a great co-op where people make all their, there's about 20 different artists and they all uh, have their own flavor and they're all am- amazing people. And so, is that's only here in Carmel or do you guys have an online presence? There's an online presence at Fine Art America. If you just type in Jason okay. Paget, Fine Art America, you can find all sorts of different drawings there and you can print it on anything you want or whatever. You okay. Want. And again, just like when I first saw this, these are activating, <laughs> at least in my reality, like I could feel, I could feel energetically as I was looking at this and he's got amazing, they're beautiful but also just understanding that if you have these printed out in your home, they're going to be working on your consciousness to help open things up. So just, I really encourage you to go out and have a look at that and just thank you, everybody. Thank you so much. It's been such a blessing to be with everybody today. Thank you. Thank you all very much. I enjoyed it. (laughs) Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'd love to ask you for one quick favor, and that's to share this episode with one person who you think will benefit from it. Let them know you're thinking about them by sharing this episode with them right now. Thank you, and I look forward to the next meditation conversation.